Well, good morning. morning. Welcome to church this morning. It's so good to be here and so good if you're viewing online with us this morning. You know, uh, I'm looking forward to coming back to church next week. It is going to be a bit strange. You know, uh, when you spend time in another culture, uh, you first get culture shock when you go there. And when you come back to your own culture, you also get reverse culture shock. And I feel for us as the church, it's going to be a little bit like that. Like uh, when we first went with the whole online church thing, it was a little bit of culture shock for us. And coming back is going to be a similar culture shock. I'm used to preaching to a lens in a camera and seeing people in front of me is a little bit of a shock. But, uh, you know, we got the Lord and he, and he will overcome all these things. Um, one of the things that the elders are doing at the moment is that we are training people for future leadership in the church. I know that I said that maybe last week and when I got home, my daughter Abby, she straight away said, who are they? Who are these people who the elders are training? So I thought this morning I'd give you their names so that you can be praying for them. They are Abrabatacharji, Harold Khan, Andrew Bloomfield, Phil Oster, Damien Chesson and Gary Sperling. And we're doing this because we as a church, we want to always be raising up the next generation of leaders. As a church, we have a vision to bring glory to God and joy to our city by planting churches that make disciples. So we want to be reproducing our life in others. And we are hoping that over this period of training, that God might put his hands on some of them and they might become elders in our church. But obviously that's the Lord. The, the Lord will set them aside. But in order to train these people, we are going through this leadership booklet by the Center for Church-Based Training called The Heart of a Leader. And on Thursday night in particular, we looked at uh, a case study of a guy named Fred. Now, I just want to read out Fred's experience because maybe you can relate to Fred. Fred had been an elder for many years, and he'd always worked hard to set an example for others in the church by studying the Bible and praying regularly. But what once del delighted him, however, had over the years become a habit, a good habit, but something of a lifeless one. Somewhere along the line, the study had become impersonal and cerebral. Prayer had become all petition and no praise. He was, however, a very active member of the church, overseeing the home church program and coordinating the church's door-to-door -door outreach program. One Sunday morning, Fred was approached by a young man from the church. Jeff, a fairly new believer, saw Fred as something of a spiritual giant. Fred had led Jeff to the Lord. Um, Jeff asked Fred, would you be willing to meet with me for prayer on a regular basis? Now, initially, Fred was flattered by the request, but as he thought about it over the next two day or two, he began to get an uneasy feeling. How could he meet with this young man and seek to be his mentor when his own walk with God was so dry? It seemed hypocritical to encourage Jeff to pray when his own prayers seemed so shallow. I wonder if you've ever felt like Fred before. Maybe that's how you're feeling right at this moment. You study the Bible, you pray regularly, and it's a good habit, but maybe it's become a lifeless one for you. So how do you regain the intimacy and joy that you once had with the Lord? 
Well, over the last five weeks on Sunday morning, we've been studying the names of God, and I hope you've enjoyed our series as we've looked at these different names for God, and we've been seeking to answer a simple question, who is God and what is He like? But so far in our study, we've looked at names that are primarily from the Old Testament. They are Old Testament depictions of the character of God. But this morning, we're going to look at a name that comes from the New Testament, a name for God that was primarily found on the lips of Jesus. It's the name Patner. It's the Greek name for father. You see, this is the name that Jesus most commonly used to describe his relationship to God. Uh, Just in John's gospel alone, Jesus calls God Father a whopping 153 times. And you see, the whole reason for this is that Jesus came to bring a revolution, that God would not just be the holy God, but he came to reveal that this holy God wanted to have an intimate relationship with us as Father And maybe, like Fred this morning, if you are spiritually dry, maybe it's you've turned your back on relating to God as a son, and you've started to relate to God as a slave. You see, this is what happened to the Christians at Galatia. Please open up your Bibles, if you have them here, or your phones, to Galatians chapter 4. Now, in Galatians chapter 4, the Apostle Paul, who wrote this letter to the Galatians, he has this burden for the church. If you just scan your, verse, your, your eyes down to verse 11 of chapter 4, you will notice that he is worried that he's wasted his time with them. In verse 13, it seems when he first arrived in Galatia, he had an illness, possibly an eye complaint. His eyes were probably pussy and gross. But Paul says in verse 13, 14, And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of Christ, as Christ Jesus. In other words, you were so overjoyed to see me and overjoyed to receive the gospel from me that my eye condition was no problem to you. But look at what he says in verse 15. He asks this question, but what has become of your blessedness? In other words, what has become of your joy? He says, you would have plucked out your eyes and you would have given them to me but now I feel like your enemy. Where has your joy gone? Where has that sense of blessedness gone in your walk with God? Well, Paul diagnoses their spiritual condition, and he says that what has happened is they've turned from living as sons, and they're now living as slaves. You see, if you want to regain your spiritual vitality and joy, you need to stop living as a slave because you are a son of God. So let's first look at that first part. You need to stop living as a slave. In Galatians chapter 4, Paul outlines three different types of spiritual slavery that people can be under. The first form of spiritual slavery that Paul outlines in Galatians 4 is the slavery of living under the Mosaic law. Look back in your Bibles to verse 23 of chapter 3. Paul says, Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. Now here Paul is reflecting 
on what it was like for the Jews, the nation of Israel, living under the Mosaic law. And he says it's like being in prison. It's like being a slave. You see, his whole point in in chapter 3 is to say that justification is by faith. That's how it happened for Abraham. And if you have faith in the promises of the gospel, then you are the sons of Abraham. And so the natural question that the Jews would have would be, what is the role of the law? If righteousness comes through faith, then why did God add the Mosaic law? Well, look down in verse 24 of chapter 3. Paul says, so the law was our guardian until Christ came. The word guardian here in Greek is a word that was used for a slave in the Greco-Roman household who had the responsibility to look after the children. This slave, if you're a rich person, you would get this slave, this guardian, and they would make sure the children went to bed on time, they would look after the children, they'd feed the children, they'd do all those sort of things. Wouldn't that be awesome, Jason and Lauren? It would be amazing. <laughs> they did all those sort of things. Uh, and uh, they monitored to the children. So for the, for, the ch- for the child, it was like they were always monitored and always directed. Look down in verse chapter 4 of verse 1, Paul clarifies what he means. He says, I mean that an heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by the father. So children under guardians are just like slaves. They have little freedom and are told what to do. You know, my wife, Tegan, she loves the royal family, and uh, she loves seeing pictures of William and Kate. And so just for her viewing pleasure this morning, I hope she's tuning in at home. I have a picture of William and Kate's first child, George. He's very cute, isn't he? Now, one day, George will most likely be the king of England. One day, he will be rich and powerful. He won't have much power left because the monarchy in England doesn't really have any power anymore, but he'll be at least rich. And this is because he is the heir of the throne to England. But like his father, he'll probably soon get sent away to boarding school at Eton College. And at boarding school, he'll have to live under a strict regime. They'll tell him when to get up, when to eat, what to do, how to study. And so it doesn't matter that he's like going to one day be the king of England. He is like a slave at the moment. He's being told what to do. Well, Paul says that this is what it was like for the the nation of Israel under the Mosaic law. It was a type of slavery. But God gave Israel the law to prepare them for the coming of Jesus. As author Tim Chester writes, the law constrained Israel, but it was designed to prepare them for the freedom that would come in Christ when the principles behind the law were internalized in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. That's what it felt like to be an Old Testament believer. They had wonderful promises, but those promises were still in the future. Now, as I look out at our people here this morning, and as you're viewing from home, you probably don't relate to that type of slavery. There are probably not many of you here who are Jewish and you're under the Mosaic law. I don't think that there are many people like that this morning, although I could be wrong. A number of years ago, there was people in our church who wanted to put themselves back under the law, and I thought it was absolutely nuts, absolutely crazy. But that's probably not something you relate to. It's certainly not something I relate to. But there is a second type of slavery that Paul talks about in this passage, and it's probably one that we can relate to a lot better. Look down in verse 8 in your Bibles. Paul says this, Formerly, when you did not know God, 
you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. You see, the Galatian church were not Jews, they were Gentiles. And before becoming Christians, they worshipped idols. People who pull things that Paul, Paul says here are by nature not gods. Now, in our culture, we don't typically bow down and literally worship gods of gold or stone or wood, but that doesn't mean we still don't worship idols. You see, an idol is anything that replaces the true God that we look to for our identity, security, and significance. And every single culture has idols. Our idols may not be made of gold or stone or wood, but we still have idols nonetheless in our culture, things that we put on a pedestal, that we say, if you have those things, then you've really made it. And idols don't have to be bad things, they can be good things. You can make an idol out of your job, or your family, or exercise, or even church ministry. And you can look to that thing to provide you for your identity, and your security, and your significance, things that God should be giving you. And idols always become enslaving because you always have to make sacrifices to them so that they will give you what you're looking for. You see, if your boss's approval is your idol and you can't live without it, then you will exhaust yourself in trying to earn her acceptance. You will sacrifice time with family, even your health on the altar of trying to gain their acceptance. And when you have their acceptance, you'll feel good about yourself. And when you don't, you'll be absolutely crushed and miserable. You know, Tim Keller says, the way that you can determine whether something has become an idol in your life is to ask yourself this probing question. What is the thing for me, if it was taken away, would make my life not worth living? Let me say that again. Think about it. What is the thing for me that if it was taken away would make my life not worth living? Is it your reputation? Is it your sense of control? Is it having the perfect marriage or having the perfect future? You know, I got to think when I ask myself that question, when this COVID-19 thing first hit, every Sunday I was depressed as could be because one of the things that probably occupies way too much of my heart is the church and now it seemingly had been just stripped away from me. You know, I said to you um, many months ago in one of my first sermons, I said, don't waste this time of COVID-19 Maybe what God is doing is stripping things away from your life so that you'll see that he is more important and more significant than anything else. It's interesting, isn't it, in, in, um, uh, over in Victoria where things aren't going so well with COVID-19 at the moment, people have gone back to what? Panic buying and hoarding once again out of fear because what happens is when that question of what you love most is taken from you, it reveals actually what is really in your heart. What is your idol? What are you really living for? Well, there is a third form of idolatry that Paul mentions actually in this passage. And this is really interesting. This is really interesting, really fascinating. So he has the, the slavery of living under the Mosaic law, 
the slavery of idolatry, but there is a third slavery. Look down in verse 8 in your Bibles again. Paul says, Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not God's. And then he goes on to say this in verse 9, But now you have come to know God, or rather, be known by God. I love that description of salvation. It's not just that you know God, but that God knows you. So they were formerly idol-worshipping pagans, but now they've come to know God. But look at what he says. How can you turn back to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, whose slaves you want to be once more again? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid that I've labored over you in vain. You see, what the Galatians were doing is they were turning to the law of Moses, to the observance of circumcision and the special days. And they thought that that was an advance. They had gone from, get this, idolatry to faith to law. But Paul says the irony is this. Paul says it's not an advancement. It's actually a step backwards, a step back into slavery. And that's because you're turning to the satanic misuse of the law. You see, there is a third form of slavery, and that's the slavery of religious performance. Now, you might say to me, the satanic misuse of the law, where did you get that from in the text? Well, notice in verse 9, Paul uses the word, the elementary principles of this world. Now, this is the second time in Galatians 4 that Paul uses this term. He uses it back in verse 3. Look back in verse 3. Paul is speaking about Israel and he says, In the same way we, Israel the Jews, when we were children, we were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Now, this phrase, elementary principles, it's hotly debated by scholars Some scholars think that it just means like the physical things of this world. But interestingly enough, when you study the letters of Paul, what you'll find is that this word has dark overtones and elsewhere it's connected to the demonic. And Paul elsewhere says that our warfare is not against flesh and blood, but against cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. And it seems what Paul is saying in verse 3, in the case of the Jews, is that Satan took God's good law, get this, which was meant to be a guardian that prepared them for the Messiah. Satan deceived them into taking God's good law as a way of justifying themselves, as a way of self-righteousness. And certainly, When you see and read the Gospels, you read about the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the other religious leaders, and they were filled with self-righteousness. And this is what had happened at Galatia. False teachers had infiltrated the church, and they were teaching that you need to believe in Jesus, but also you need to keep the law. And they were thinking it's an advancement. We're going from idolatry to faith to law-keeping. And Paul says, no, you're going back to paganism. You're going back to to something that's satanic in origin. You know, I've seen this so many times. I've seen this so many times. Is that someone is radically saved out of a very sinful background. 
They, were, they didn't grow up in the church. They knew nothing about Jesus. They're saved out of this very sinful background. And they hear about Jesus and they hear about the gospel. And they're radically saved and they have joy because they've come to Jesus. But then what happens, what can happen is they then turn from just having Jesus and they turn into legalism and moral performance. And their joy dries up, their peace dries up, the spiritual life dries up. You know, Satan is very crafty. And now you've come to Christ and you're no longer going to hell with him. What he wants to do is he wants to rob you of the liberty and joy of being a child of God. If he can't get you into the bondage of, of idolatry, he'll try to get you into the bondage of religious performance. Now, I'm not saying that you don't need spiritual discipline to grow as a Christian. Uh, Paul would say many times, he would say, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. But here's the thing. If you take even those good things, those means of grace, like Bible study and prayer, serving God, church attendance... And in your heart, they become a means by which you then tick off a list by which you think of yourself as being therefore right with God. Then what will happen is your joy, your blessedness will evaporate in your Christian life. You'll become a slave. See, Paul says, if you want to have spiritual vitality, you need to stop living like a slave. And there are these different forms of slavery, just the natural slavery of living under the Mosaic law, which God actually instituted for Israel to prepare them for the coming of Jesus. But then there is the sl slavery of idolatry and sin, and then there is the slavery of religious performance, of getting on a religious treadmill where you're trying and trying and trying and trying, trying really hard to earn your acceptance with God. And it's completely exhausting. Your, your, your vitality as a Christian dries up. So how do you overcome this? How do you get back? How do you get back your spiritual vitality? Stop living as a slave. And remember that God has made you a son. Remember that God has made you a son. Look down in verse 4 of chapter 4, Paul introduces the good news. He says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law. There's so much that could be unpacked in this verse. It was exactly the right time that God sent forth Jesus in human history. He was born of a woman. He's fully human. He's born under the law. He always obeyed God fully, obeyed the law fully. We did not obey the law. We were condemned criminals. But Jesus obeyed the law fully and then he went to redeem us on the cross. He became a curse for us so that we might have forgiveness and justification. But that's not just it. You're not just a forgiven sinner. That's not just it. Look at what Paul says down at the end of verse 5. God sent forth his son that we might receive adoption as sons. We don't just have forgiveness and justification, but now we are God's son. Now, it's interesting to me that Paul says God sent his son. He could have used another word there. He could have said God sent Jesus 
or God sent the Messiah, the Christ. But he says, God sent his son. I think this is significant because the best way to know that someone is a father is to see their children, is to see their children. You know, when I go to Nepal and I go there, they think, Timon, you're such a young man. I like it. You're such a young man. You look so young and sprightly. And then I tell them that I have five daughters and they're like, what? And I say, one of my daughters is married. They can't believe it. They wouldn't have known that I was a father except that I have children. And you see, we see the fatherhood. The best way that we saw the fatherhood of God is in the fact that he sent his son. And we see what type of father he is through the way that he deals with his son, Jesus. And what type of father is God the Father? God the Father is the type of father who delights in his son. At the baptism of Jesus, God the Father said to Jesus, you are my beloved son, in you I am well pleased. He's a father who loves his son. In John 3, verse 35, Jesus says, the father loves the son and has placed everything in his hands. In John 5, verse 20, Jesus said, the father loves the son and shows him all that he does. In John 17, verse 24, Jesus prays, father, you have loved me with a love that we shared before the creation of the world. It's an eternal love. (laughs) He loves his son. And here's the thing. Because you are now adopted as a son and you are in the son, This is the way the Father feels about you. He delights in you as his child. He loves you. Do you get it? God the Father gave his Son to the whip, the thorns, the nails, the darkness of the cross to redeem you, to show you how much he loved you so that you could become his child. But you know what? For God, that was not enough. It wasn't just enough to legally adopt you as a son. He wants you to experience sonship. Oh man, this is so good. All you people in the, in the room at the moment should be like, you know, cheering on the top of your chairs because this, this is really good stuff, all right? This is so good stuff. He doesn't just want you to know legally that you are a son. He wants you to experience that sonship. And so look at what he does. Look down in verse 6. It says, Because you are his son, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. So fascinating to me. All the way throughout the Bible, the Holy Spirit is called like the Holy Spirit. But Paul calls him the spirit of the son because he he, he wants us to know that one of the ministries of the spirit in your life is to to not just so that you'll know legally that you're a son, but so you'll experience sonship, that your heart will cry out, Abba, Father. Romans 5, the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. Romans 8, his spirit witnesses with our spirits that we are indeed the children of God. Earlier this year, I was reading a book by Jeff Bingham, and he was speaking about how, when he was a preacher, he was speaking about how he was really hard on his church, and like he was a strong and authoritative preacher, but there's just this hard edge to his preaching. And then one day he went to this camp, and he had this experience of the love of God. He realized that God loved him. 
changed his heart. Jeff got back up into the pulpit, but it was a different Jeff. <laughs> there was not just that, that, that strength and conviction. There was all that gentleness of a father in his preaching. You see, that's the ministry of the Spirit. To make us, not just so that we know legally that we are God's sons, but to know in our hearts, bring that experience of sonship into our lives. You see, you will only stop being a slave to that idol or sin when you are convinced that the Father's love is more satisfying than what that idol or sin promises to give you. Um, I don't know whether you had this, but when I was a kid, I used to, in Sunday school, they used to have these tapes from the jungle doctor. Remember those, the jungle doctor? No, some of you don't. Phil doesn't because he didn't grow up going to Sunday school. But, and, but like we used to have these jungle doctor stories that we used to listen to. Probably Sarah did, I reckon. No, no, no. A bit before your time too. Well, let me, let me tell you about one of the jungle doctor stories. There's this monkey, right? And monkey would get up to all this trouble. Does anyone know what I'm talking about here? Yes, you know what I'm talking about. Fantastic. So there was monkey and monkey was always getting in trouble. And one time monkey looked in this um, like jar, and in these jar were these um, nuts. A monkey put in his hand to grab the nuts. And, um, and because his now fist was around the nuts, he couldn't pull his hand out of the jar. And so he tried smacking the jar to break the jar, but the jar wasn't broken. And this was all a way that the hunter had set up to catch monkeys. Because for monkeys to go free, they would have to let go of the nuts, and then they could pull their hand out and go free. But monkey couldn't let go of the nuts. You know, and this is what sin does, is it traps us. And for us to really turn from sin and idolatry, we have to be convinced that what those nuts promise us is nothing like, as we let go of the nuts, the embrace of the Father. God the Father. God the Father. So you never really have freedom from sin without this doctrine of sonship. And further, you'll only stop being a slave to religious performance when you are convinced that you are loved by the Father, period. There is nothing more for you to do. Nothing more for you to do. God sent forth his son. That was it. That was all that had to happen. And he redeemed you. That was it. And once you're convinced of that, Bible reading, prayer, church attendance, serving Christ, it becomes not a duty. It becomes a joy. I get to read and commune with my father every morning. I get to pray with the king of heaven. Tim Chester writes this. Listen to this. Listen to this. What could be better than sharing the, in the infinite love and infinite joy of the eternal Father with the eternal Son? Think of what you might aspire to in life, your greatest hopes and dreams, and then multiply them by a hundred. Think of winning Olympic gold or lifting up the World Cup in soccer. Think of being a billionaire and owning a Caribbean island. Think of your love life playing out like the most heartwarming romantic movie. Good. But that's not as good 
as enjoying the Father for all eternity. Not as good as Him. And so you can stop being a slave when you remember that you are a son. Now, some of you ladies might think I'm being misogynistic this morning by calling you all sons, but that's not, not it. You see, the Bible sort of says that we are sons, and it says that males and females are sons. We're all sons because the sons were the ones who inherit. And do you realize we are going to inherit the kingdom? We're going to inherit the kingdom. The king is coming and we're going to inherit the kingdom. What could be greater than that? And this is our identity as the children of God. So are you serving as a slave or are you serving as a son? Jesus came to bring us into adoption with the Father so that we might be God's sons. Let me pray. Father, it's so easy for us to get trapped by the enemy, either in idolatry or sin, or in legalistic self-righteousness. And both of those are traps, and both of those are slavery. It means we don't enjoy the freedom and sonship that we have. We stand amazed, God, that one so great would send his only son so that we rebels might be redeemed and brought back to you, Father. And then we stand amazed that you would adopt us and then we stand amazed that you would send the Spirit into our hearts so that we could cry out, Abba, Father, so that we could have that intimate relationship with you, Father. We thank you so much for your word today and for what you've taught us over the last six weeks about the character of God. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's stand. Let's sing to our Lord.